Welcome to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from Oxford's REI that examines America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. It's now 20 years since al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorists hijacked airplanes and used them as weapons to devastating effect. No one above a certain age can forget where they were when they saw the images of the collapse of the Twin Towers. The world seemed to change forever that day. And in particular to many of us, America seemed to change profoundly. Just as the attack on Pearl Harbor, that earlier day of infamy, was said to have awakened a sleeping giant, 9-11 dramatised America at its best and its worst. It brought both unity and division, called forth extraordinary, brutal military power, yet also highlighted American weakness. America at its most beautiful and its most ugly. So how did 9-11 change America? Did it accelerate the long decline of American power from its 1945 high point? Did it contribute to the polarisation of today's politics? to the growing sense of existential angst about what America stands for. Hello, I'm Peter Fever. I'm a professor of political science and public policy at Duke University in North Carolina, where I head the Duke program in American Grand Strategy. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Dr. Nazita Lajavardi. I'm a political scientist and attorney at Michigan State University, uh, broadly studying how marginalized groups fare in American democracy. Uh, Nazita, um very rapidly, 45 days after the attacks, Congress approved the Patriot Act, so-called, with huge majorities. I think there was only one no vote in the Senate and 66 votes against uh, in the House. Most of those were were Democrats. I think there were three Republican dissenters, weren't there? What did the Patriot Act do? Yeah, I mean, what did the Patriot Act not do? The Patriot Act, I think, importantly for the population that I study, uh, that population being Muslim Americans, made very clear in Section 102 that Congress makes the following findings, that Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, and Americans from South Asia play a vital role in our nation are entitled to nothing less than the full rights of every American. Now, why was that at the beginning of the Patriot Act? Why specify these groups? Because it was abundantly clear that the rest of the Patriot Act might, in fact, create disparities for these populations. And so what you see with the Patriot Act is an expansion of surveillance powers of federal law enforcement that didn't just attack these groups or harm these groups um, in that year and the decades that followed, but also expanded the powers of border and customs enforcement and our longer southern border as well. And so I would say that it vastly extended federal law enforcement powers and surveillance that farmed numerous groups. Peter, I mean, you see in democratic societies at the start of wars, this is often what happens is that the legislature passes a piece of legislation which vastly expands the scope of governments in the areas that Nazita was just 
talking about. It happened in the United States at, in the First World War and the Second World War. It happened in Britain, of course, in both of those major world wars. But was this a war? This question uh, seems quite important. It was obviously begun to be described as a global war on terror. Can you kind of take us back to that time in the aftermath of September, October 2001, Peter? I mean, did it feel like a war? Was the justification for this very sweeping piece of legislation rushed through Congress at record speed with overwhelming bipartisan majorities? Is the explanation for that that it felt like a war at the time? And if so, why? Yes, that is the short version. And uh, I just interpret the history very differently from Nazita. I, I think three things were were uppermost uh, in the minds of policymakers, uh, both in the executive branch and the legislative branch. The first is that this attack was a, a small-scale attack by the terms of what people had been worried about, what experts had warned might happen. This was actually on the lower end, and yet it was extremely painful. And so there was a sense in which, wait a second, this was a horrible thing that happened that could have been prevented had we used all elements and of a national power to prevent it. That's the first sort of big uh, feeling, man, this did not have to happen, and this hurts a lot. The second uh, feeling was, this is the first of many that are coming down the pike. Uh, we know now that the uh, al-Qaeda and uh, al-Qaeda affiliates were planning follow-on attacks. And then the third concern was captured well in that opening uh, line that was read. There was a recognition that the Americans had overreacted in previous wars and that they had demonized groups as a whole uh, uh, who didn't deserve to be demonized. So they had demonized Japanese Americans or German Americans. Uh, and in every previous war, Americans had gone too far. And the mood in the country, particularly on the street, was that we might go too far. And that is why uh, the Bush administration in particular, but especially beginning with President Bush, said, we cannot treat Muslim Americans as if they are the enemy. We have to address real national security concerns, but not in a way that demonizes Muslim Americans. And so the president went to extraordinary lengths to try to push back against the demonization of Muslim Americans. He was bending over backwards so far that he angered his base uh, to point out that, look, the Muslim Americans are not the threat. Uh, and so you see that you captured in that uh, preamble. You also see it in the president's visit to the mosque. Repeatedly, this is a theme. Now, as we all know, uh, and, and Nazita has well documented, there were still abuses. Americans still went too far and I, and lots and too many cases of, of horrible treatment of Muslim Americans. But compared to our previous wars, uh, much, much better than what Americans did in, in previous generations. And so uh, not good enough, but better than the historical standard. The president did address the Muslim community in, in the aftermath of 9-11. Uh, that is absolutely true. He went to the Islamic Center of D.C. And, and spoke to the congregation. But in that speech, there was an inelegance about it. Um, the president conflated Muslims and the terrorists, Islam and the terrorists, and then tried to create distinctions between Americans and Muslims. And so what you saw was the beginning of this conflation of Muslim and terrorists. And you see it even now with Islamist and Islamic terror attacks or Islamist terror attacks. It continues in our vocabulary. 
And what you also saw was another distinction between Americans and Muslims, as though one could not be both Muslim and American. There was this mutual exclusivity that then developed in our national vernacular. And so in in doing something to be inclusive of a community, unfortunately, it had this unintended backfiring effect. You know, Linda Sarsour <laughs> put it well uh, in an interview with the New York Times. She said that there was essentially psychological warfare on Muslims uh, that came about uh, in the years after after 9-11. Um, when you look at the different police departments and, and surveillance programs that actually began to conflate uh, religiosity with radicalization and the amount of heightened skepticism and intrusiveness into the Muslim community where people were treated as uh, guilty of something like terror, which is really like an evil against humanity, that created massive, massive uh, psychological effects on this community. There was surveillance, you know, in in restaurants, in mosques, in schools, uh, grocery stores. I mean, you name it. Uh, it was it was extraordinary and it was pervasive. Could you just um, tell us, Nazita, how that surveillance was experienced? I mean, what exactly do you mean? I mean, what did yeah. people see? What did people hear? I mean, so one one thing is that because there's this is all um, issue of national security, we actually don't have data on this. We don't know how extensive uh, and pervasive uh, surveillance has been. All we have is anecdotal evidence. But one example is the New York Police Department, which had not only left its jurisdiction of, you know, the city of New York City and uh, the state of New York, but had begun a surveillance program on Yale students who belong to the Muslim Students Association. So, you know, went to Connecticut and began spying on students at an elite university. So that's just maybe one example. But there were, of course, warrantless wiretaps. Uh, there were unlawful detentions that were prolonged without, you know, any real right of due process. And um, that's not even beginning to look at, you know, the the ramifications of the Patriot Act, like Section 215, which authorized warrantless wiretaps of, of Muslims and uh, electronic communications were, were subpoenaed and uh, there were warrantless gag orders that were infinite. Um, and so there's a number of different violations of, I, I would argue, Fourth Amendment rights uh, that, that American Muslims had. Peter, I, I want to take us to the foreign policy, the external response of the, of the federal government after 9-11. And of course, as, 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 as listeners will know, there was, of course, the intervention in Afghanistan, which has only very recently finally come to an end as far as the United States is concerned. And then there was the intervention in Iraq. Um, of course, in both of those cases, the um, civilian populations were Muslim as well. So there, if, if what Nazita is describing, I mean, you, you, you have said that President Bush, and of course, this, this is right, there's lots of evidence, as you say, that President Bush himself was very concerned to separate the Muslim population as a whole, whether in the United States or abroad from the terrorists. But what nevertheless then happened was that the United States went to war with Muslim countries. And, uh, and of course, he at least at some point used the phrase crusade, uh, didn't he? Um, I, I mean, I think he probably then moved away from the word crusade. But what do you think um, the Bush administration got right? And what do you think the Bush administration got wrong in terms of the way it described and articulated what it was fighting against in the 
you know, five, six years after, well, for the whole of the rest of the two terms of the Bush administration. Well, yeah, he used the word crusade once in an unscripted moment, uh, regretted it uh, and never used it again. Um, and it, and the word was only used thereafter by his critics <laughs> who kept it alive, this one gaffe uh, and promoted it and made it a, a much bigger deal than, of course, it was because, in fact, what President Bush was uh, was trying to do was the opposite of of what that word means in uh, Muslim communities. But the challenge of the of the the fight against Al Qaeda and against uh, ideologically aligned groups was they wanted a war against Islam. That's what their war plan was was to trigger a U.S. response. That would either be ineffectual, which is what bin Laden thought. He thought there'd be some ineffectual response and then America would be exposed as the uh, weaker horse and the, the communities in the Arab countries uh, that he was hoping would rise up against their, their corrupt leaders would see bin Laden as the stronger horse. That was plan A was that the U.S. would respond ineffectually. Plan B is that U.S. would respond the way it did against, uh, say, Japan, where it demonized the people. It, it, it made, you know, propaganda that it, in hindsight now, if you, if you watched the official propaganda of World War II, it's cringeworthy and nothing like that, of course, happened after 9-11. But nevertheless, I think bin Laden was counting on that so that it could be him on behalf of 1.1 billion Muslims around the world against the infidel. And of course, what the United States was trying to do, the United States and its partners were trying to do was something very different, which was to come in on behalf of the Muslim victims around the world who were the primary victims of most of al-Qaeda's violence. So it was a very tricky challenge to come in on behalf of Muslims fighting a particular offshoot. Now, there's a lot of sloppiness in language and conflations, and what got experienced, say, at home or abroad, is very different from what was intended. Uh, and the uh, administration really struggled with how to name the enemy. For a long, long time, they refused to put the ideological label on precisely to avoid this problem. And as a result, uh, they called it this amorphous war on terror. And uh, lots of folks, particularly in Britain, Michael Howard in particular, had a field day mocking this, you know, you can't have a war on a tactic kind of thing. And of course, that was well understood in America, but they were trying to navigate tiptoe through the ideological minefield. We finally had the president give a speech where he labeled the ideology, but he was under a lot of pressure, particularly from his right flank, to use even more offensive labels than the ones that were ultimately used. In the end, the label that I think was most apposite is militant Islamism. That is the ideology that Al-Qaeda that they embrace. And to pretend that it's something other than that, I think, would be analytically weak and, and counterproductive. Azita? You were making kind of facial expressions, sometimes of agreement, sometimes not when Peter was talking. I just wondered if you wanted to kind of comment. On There's a lot of <laughs> up and down and left and right <laughs> and up and down. No, I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's really great to have this conversation, I think, um, mostly because he's coming from the perspective of a policymaker. And so you learn about the intended policy behind what happened, you know, but I think also I study the, you know, perhaps unintended uh, consequences on an already marginalized population. And so I think both 
both realities can be can be true. And and this is a struggle, you know, it's it's a struggle for even today's policymakers. You know, it continues. This is not a this is not something that's unique to the Bush administration. It continued throughout the Obama administration and then, of course, through the Trump presidency. But it's also continuing today throughout the Biden presidency. And so it would also be unfair to hang this only on the Bush administration as well. I, I want to ask you, moving to a slightly different um, territory, I want to ask you both um for you to 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 talk a little bit about the impact on uh on American culture in a much broader sense and the levels of anxiety the way in which people interacted one another you know going going beyond the particular community the marginalized to the relatively marginalized community of Muslim Americans that Nazita has been talking about I mean can you describe you know from from your from your own observations as well as from your from your academic work how um 911 affected americans sense of each other and sense of their own communities does it seem to both of you that 911 does represent an important turning point uh, in american culture in that broader sense undoubtedly yes uh, but i would say it took time uh, for a shift to to emerge the heightened value and importance of patriotism uh, is something that you can really trace to a post uh, 9-11 world and contemporary American politics. For instance, the performative acts of patriotism, like putting an American flag sticker on your car or hanging an American flag on the subway in New York. Yeah. Or you know, every car in the subway in New York. Are, exactly. Know. Yeah. Or, you know, just hanging a flag. Lapel pins. Exactly. You know, outside of your home or, you know, wearing it on your suit. It's it performing Americanism, performing patriotism, I think, became much more commonplace. And in some ways, it, I would say, bonded, you know, the majority of the population together. Um, and there was this rallying around the flag. I mean, it's it's a paradox, that, isn't it? Because if if the if the immediate effect was a rallying around the flag, as happens at the start of most wars, and the approval ratings for George W. Bush were were sky high, weren't they, for a, for a period after the nine eleven attacks? But more broadly, what has happened to American politics since two thousand one is an extraordinary levels of polarization. And you talk about a pre nine eleven world and a post nine eleven world. I mean, you, I mean, it's hard to imagine back in the nineteen nineties how low the stakes now seem. I mean, Congress fighting over what to do with a budget surplus. I mean, it's, I mean, this is in so many ways just feels like a, a very different world, doesn't it? I mean, how would you um, answer this question, Peter? I mean, in a, in a kind of in the big sense, I mean, how do you think 9-11 has kind of changed the feel of being American? Well, there was a September 10th agenda, right? The, all the things that people were worried about on September 10th, and then there's a September 12th agenda. Uh, but what's striking is that 9-11 did not, in fact, solve any of the problems on the September 10th to-do list. My memory, Peter, just to interject there, my memory of the of watching closely the 2000 presidential election, as I did, which again, in retrospect, seems an incredibly, I mean, obviously, it ended in the Bush v. Gore Supreme Court decision, but the actual campaign itself was conducted in an extraordinarily civilized way by the standards of recent presidential elections. And my memory is that it concerned issues like investment in education, in the, um, the environment. I mean, it was a very kind of normal election in which the question was about priorities for public spending. Is is that what you, is that the sort of thing you mean when you say there was a, a to do list and 
Well, September I was also the thinking of 10th. the foreign policy to-do list because on the level of foreign policy, the uh, election is even more ironic because uh, President candidate Bush was campaigning on a, a more humble foreign policy, one that would be less uh, militarized that Clinton had o- and Gore the vice president had over-militarized foreign policy and gotten the U.S. involved in all sorts of military misadventures around the world that were less less important. It was the military as social work was uh, a criticism. And and it was uh, in the meantime, we were losing our eye on the strategic competition that was coming with China. And so uh, President Bush was going to reorient and um, – you know, transform the national security apparatus to be ready for the future threat on China. That was the foreign policy platform in 2000. Uh, and my point about uh, the September 10th agenda is that remained, <laughs> but it was also having to v- compete for attention and budget and uh, energy with all of the September 12th agenda as well. That So that's the, the first way uh, that the change is, is a little more um, complicated. The second way, and, and this I think is, is hard to imagine from our current spot, but was very, very real in the moment. In the 90s, the concern was the American public just was casualty phobic and would not support military adventures or uh, interventions if Americans died. And so the pressure was on the Clinton Gore team to come up with military responses that would put at risk zero Americans. They that that was the planning us um, directive for Kosovo. Come up with a plan where zero Americans die in the Kosovo war. A, a striking thing, and this constraint was sort of limiting what America could do around the world in confronting global po- problems. On September twelfth, the opposite concern uh, came to fore. And that is that the American public response would push too far. And one of the reasons why the Bush administration moved so quickly and intervened in Afghanistan so quickly was for fear that if they didn't and al-Qaeda struck a second time, that the public pressure to go for truly unlimited military response would be irresistible. That is, that the public opinion flipped from being a you know, a foot on the brake kind of constraint to being a foot stomping on the accelerator kind of restraint after 9-11. That's a very, very big change. Nizita, I, I want to ask if I if I may to sort of draw out your your views on the on the connection, the threads that lead from the response to 9-11, both by the federal government and by the broader society, and the extraordinary polarization of American politics, which we've witnessed in recent years, and and perhaps particularly, if you if you if you wish, the the rise of of, of Donald Trump and that and that brand of politics and its its takeover of of the Republican Party. I mean, when we when we write, as people are already doing, the the history of the rise of Trumpism, what role, if any, in your view, does nine eleven play in that story? Well, Michael Tesler, who's a brilliant social scientist at UC Irvine, has a number of papers going back to uh, the Obama era and really showing that opposition to Obama was really rooted in anti-Muslim animus. 
um, and really showing that the birther movement, for instance, that began at that moment. So the birther movement being the, the claim that President Obama was not born in the United States and therefore wasn't eligible to be, and wasn't therefore a legitimate president. Exactly. And also the the rise of the Tea Party, for instance, support for the Tea Party. So uh, Michael has shown through panel data that these um, attitudes were determinants of opposition to Obama and later fueled support for Trump. And so I think the polarization that you that you speak of really can be traced to the end of the Bush era. And, you know, I think Michael would, uh, would suggest that it was um, really rooted in anti-Muslim sentiment. And I think, you know, my own scholarship has shown that apart from partisanship, anti-Muslim hostility was the single most important predictor of uh, Trump support in the 2016 election. And so, you know, while we're having this discussion of policy uh, intentions, one of these unintended uh, consequences has been uh, pervasive uh, Islamophobia. If we accept for the sake of argument that it wasn't President Bush's intention to demonize the Muslim American population, what were the drivers of the Islamophobia that your work demonstrates was there? Do, do we look to, uh, I mean, were there active agents propagating it? Do we look to you know, Fox News, do we look to politicians who were able to leverage that kind of uh, animus, that kind of anxiety for their own ends? What, what would you, what, what would you point to as the drivers? Yeah, I mean, the media, of course, plays a role in all of this. Uh, my own analysis of CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News from the 1990s through 2016 has shown that Fox News, um, you know, when they did speak about Muslims, as you'd probably expect, spoke about, about them more negatively than, you know, what they typically were airing. But the, the reality is, is that the news media didn't really begin to talk about Muslims for some time. It took time for the news media to really begin to centralize American Muslims and Muslims globally in their news media. There was this effect of heightened discussion of Muslims in the year or two after 9-11, but that, that discussion faded uh, until the Obama era. Another thing I want to say is that political elites have played a big role. So just moving beyond the, um, you know, the Bush administration, I want to just draw our attention just quickly to the 2016 primary election. In 2015 alone, John Bennett, who was an Oklahoma state representative, stated, quote, American Muslims are a cancer that must be cut out of America. David Bowers, who was the mayor of Roanoke, Virginia, called for the registration and subsequent incarceration of Muslims in U.S. internment camps. Ben Carson, who was the previous Republican presidential contender, compared Syrian refugees, many of whom are Muslim, to rabid dogs. And of course, there was, you know, the President Trump statement of, you know, calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the U.S. So there was an open espousement of anti-Muslim animus by elites, you know, that were in, in the public sphere that I think we cannot ignore. Peter, I mean, same question to you, really. I mean, if we if we if we look at contemporary American politics and it's in ex, extreme polarization and we look at what's happened to the Republican Party, it's a very different Republican Party now, as I think you'd agree, from the Republican uh, Party that was able to nominate President George W. Bush, the party that was running the White House when you worked there. It's a very different Republican Party now. What would your answer to the question be? What role did 9-11 play in that 
transformation, that polarization? I think it played a role, but probably less than uh, than this discussion has uh, indicated. But certainly, it, the polarization can be traced back further into the 90s, and, and you see it uh, across a range of issues, most notably on the um, – Democratic Party driving out any pro-life Democrats. It used to be a lot of pro-life Democrats. Joe Biden used to be a, a kind of a pro-life uh, Democrat. There's a there's a, a wedge on on those issues. The and I think Nazid is right that uh, elites play a, a key role here. One one set of elites that I'll I'll just uh, sing, single out for attention because they haven't been mentioned so far, but anti-Bush elites, which paved the way for Trumpism. Uh, they'd so demonized Bush uh, and treated everything that Bush said and, and equated it with racism, equated it with Islamophobia. And that created space for Trumpism because Trump and his supporters said, well, if you're going to call that, uh, then we're just free to say anything. And and so Trump in the 2016 election uh, weaponized that very effectively and, you know, particularly against Jeb Bush, who he thought was going to be his most formidable primary challenger, turned out not to be so formidable. But but Trump basically said <laughs> Trump basically said, if you if you want to be a punching bag, you can be an ordinary Republican, but I'm going to be a punch back bag. And and so those who have been punching Republicans sort of ironically created space for Trump. And then finally, and this is the this is a really paradoxical result, but it's worth flagging, uh, President Trump in 2020 improved his margins among people of color, among Muslim Americans. He did better with Muslim American voters in 2020 than he did in 2016. And that's after all of the policies that were vividly on display uh, that uh, I didn't support and, and I'm sure would appall many of the listeners. And so it's just a much more complex uh, picture, I yeah, think. You, and 9-11 is a factor, set, but not all Sorry, you, you've nicely set me up, actually. I was going to ask Nazita a question about the about division within the, the Muslim community. We've been naturally you know, talking about this as a singular community, but of, but of course, like any community that defined whether it's by religion or any other uh, identity, of course, uh, it, it, it isn't singular. Um, what's your response to Peter's point there about Trump voters 2020 versus 2016? Peter is absolutely right. He's absolutely right. There was um, massive gains among people of color uh, towards Trump. Uh, and I say massive, you know, um, and I should contextualize this, that moving from under 20% support to 30% right. support among the Muslim, American Muslim community is still, you know, an absolute value. It is. It's very low. Low. Nevertheless, it is not notable, isn't it? Given, but it given is the way increase. the narrative is usually framed. Yeah. But I also think that what we need to realize is that a lot of uh, calculus is changed for minority voters um, in, you know, 2020 as people went to the voting booth. So, um, of course, there was COVID. A lot of uh, minority voters are um, were deeply affected financially by um, the lockdowns. Uh, so there was definitely an economic element that drove them to support Trump's policies of trying to open the economy back up. Um, there was also 
a great deal of anti-black backlash among uh, minority communities um, and also among the Muslim community um, in the wake of the George Floyd murder and uh, the subsequent BLM protest. And this is, you know, one of these ugly truths that those of us who study minority politics have to spend more time unpacking. Um, but it's certainly there descriptively, you know, as, as we begin, t- as we begin to, uh, you know, try to understand the, um, 2020 election. What's really great is that there are data sets that have been tracking, you know, um, how people say that they intend to vote in the primaries and the general elections on a weekly basis, um, pre COVID and then post COVID. Uh, of course, uh, the data that, uh, extends from July 2020 through November 2020 has not yet been released. But those of us who are looking at this data can see that there was a massive shift um, beginning in June 2020. 9-11 is yet another one of those moments which is often narrated as an awakening for America, a kind of sleeping America. Its naivety um, was lost on 9-11. It was a transformational uh, moment when it kind of woke up as a nation to the world that it was in. Can you tell me how significant 9-11 was as a transformational moment? Where does it stand? How will we look back on this in 100 or 200 years' time, do you think? Peter? I think perhaps its most lasting effect was that it woke up Americans to the latent power at their disposal, whether it's in the in the state or in the course of arms of the state, the military, etc. That was a tremendous amount of power that was available in the 90s, but not uh, turned in kinetic form. And after 9-11, it did. And uh, across the board, law enforcement, intelligence, the military, the economy, and the uh, state use of economic tools, et cetera, all of those things increased uh, dramatically. That was available to previous presidents, but maybe politically not uh, usable. After 9-11, they used it. Nazita? I would say 9-11 permanently expanded federal law enforcement, and we're not going back. Previous wars had, had militarized society in a broad sense. One thing about this global war on terror is the direct funneling of uh, military equipment into the many, many 18,000 or however many there are separate law enforcement agencies across the United States. I mean, is there then a direct line in that sense from 9-11 to George Floyd and Black Lives Matter? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think you have one without the other. Uh, that That's probably going to be a bigger conversation. But yeah, I, my Short answer is yes, you don't have one without the other. Nazita um, and Peter, thank you both very much indeed. This has been a really interesting discussion and thank you both for sharing your um, your thoughts and your own scholarship and your perspectives on this question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nazita Lajavadi and Peter Fever, both close and intelligent observers of American politics, coming from quite different perspectives but finding common ground in a shared understanding of the uncontrollability of events. Historians are forever searching for turning points, the moments when we can see the world shifting underneath our feet, an old order suddenly crumbling. As humans, we need those breakpoints in our narratives to make sense of the passage of time. And occurring seemingly out of the blue, the clear blue September sky, in fact, at the very dawn of a new millennium, my bet is that historians will long regard 9-11 as one such turning point. If so, 
It will be in part because at stake in those attacks and in the American response was the fundamental question of what America stands for. There were people abroad who claimed no sympathy for the terrorists, but who nevertheless said that in some sense America had it coming. Even a writer in the London Review of Books said essentially this. And yet the attacks also reignited that equally old trope, America as the last best hope of Earth. Even in France, a nation shortly to be castigated by warmongering Bush supporters as cheese-eating surrender monkeys for their failure to join the invasion of Iraq, the immediate response of Le Monde was the headline Nous sommes tous Américains. We are all Americans. My name's Adam Smith you've been listening to The Last Best Hope. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe and like us wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye.